And Andrew's going to read Isaiah <laughs> chapter 61 for us. Thank you. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to, procl to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of joy instead of mourning, and then a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance, and so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting co covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. And all who see them will acknowledge that they are a people of the Lord has been blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as long for as the soil makes the sprout come up, and the garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. Sometimes the situation that surrounds us becomes so overwhelming, it seems to so uh, press us in, that it becomes difficult for us to imagine how things could ever be any different. Uh, you're probably sick already of people speaking about coronavirus, and I fear there's probably uh, a lot more legs on this to come. But I think we felt something of that with this pandemic that we find ourselves still burdened by. You know, the restrictions that we live with. I mean, we know how we would like things to be, we would really love to be free to do whatever we want without someone hassling us about whether we have our face covered, whether we've had our arm pricked. But to be honest, at times, the gap between where we are and where we'd like to be just seems, it just seems so far. It seems to be too great a gap for us to be able to bridge in our minds. How do we get from here to there? We sometimes struggle to see it. And if we think we've got it bad, think about people living in Syria or Yemen today, where they've seen war, blockade going on for years. And while everyone wants peace and prosperity, there are few who can picture what it will take for them to get from here to there. And that's the sort of context 
into which the message of Isaiah 61 comes. Isaiah's looking ahead. He's, he's pointed God's people to a day of disaster that's coming. The nation is going to be conquered. They're going to be overrun by the Babylonian Empire. And worse than that, the people are going to be deported out of the promised land. They're going to be held as slaves and captives in a foreign nation. The city of Jerusalem and the beloved temple are going to be destroyed. But strangely, the difficulty of Isaiah's message is not all of that negative stuff. The difficulty in Isaiah's message is the promise that comes with it. He gives them this hope. In chapter 60, God has promised that from that defeated, deported, despondent place, He'll rescue them. He'll restore them, not just to the land. Actually, that's the easy bit. He's going to restore them to Himself. He's going to have a relationship again with His people. He's going to cleanse them to make them His people again. So, if you were to read through chapter 60, you would read things like this, although you've been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory, and your days of sorrow will end." And surely that's what the people of Israel wanted to be. Who wouldn't want these sorts of qualities to mark out your nation? But let's be honest, who could see it happening? How will we get from disaster and ruin to that place where the Lord will be our everlasting light and our days of sorrow will end? Who could see what it would take to bring God's rebellious people back to himself? Well, verse 1 of chapter 61, someone steps forward and speaks. It's the voice of the Lord's anointed. He's going to explain how they get from disaster and ruin to being back into relationship with the living God. Here in chapter 61 is revealed to us the transforming power of God. One of the trickier aspects of reading a book like Isaiah is, is the tendency for different voices to jump in, sometimes when you least expect it. You need to keep a close look at the pronouns, and even then it can be difficult to be entirely sure who's speaking, and we'll see something of that as we go through this chapter. But there's no doubt at the start of this chapter who is speaking. It is literally the Lord's anointed. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Throughout the second half of this whole book, this individual comes to the fore. As I mentioned, he's repeatedly the Lord's servant earlier. He's this promised Messiah, this Savior who God promises to send, and we're going to see that very clearly before we're finished with this chapter. And as he speaks we see that the Lord's anointed turns weaklings 
into mighty oaks. The Lord's anointed turns weaklings into mighty oaks. He comes with a message of good news. That's verse 1. What's he been anointed to do? To bring good news. And it's good news for some specific groups of people. Good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, opening prison to those who are bound, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance to our God. This chapter really is taken up with that declaring of the Lord's favor. He will get on to the, the declaring of the vengeance of God. You'll find that in chapter 63. But for here, it's the message of the Lord's favor. And this message that he brings to the poor, the brokenhearted, to the imprisoned. And that term that he uses in verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, is actually really helpful for us because it picks up on a significant part of the God-given rhythm of life that was to take place in Israel. Now, we are probably all somewhat aware of the principle of the Sabbath. You know, in six days God created, on the seventh day He rested, and this was to be the rhythm of life among God's people. They worked for six days, and on the seventh day they rested from their labors. It was a day that was to be holy to the Lord. Well, actually, that rhythm was evidenced every seven years as well. So, not just every seven days, but every seven years. It was called the Sabbath year. And so, for six years, they would work the land. They would sow it. They would cultivate it. But in the seventh year, it was to be a year of rest for the land. And so, it wasn't worked. And whatever it yielded naturally, that was to be what was provided for Israel to eat. But the pattern actually went even bigger than that. After they'd been through seven of those cycles of seven years, there was a special day came. It was called the year of Jubilee. So, seven sevens are 49. Every 50th year was the year of Jubilee in Israel. It was a year of liberation for all of those who had had to sell their land or maybe even had to sell themselves in order to survive then in that year of jubilee, this reset would take place. The land would be restored to the original families who it had been allocated to. Debts were canceled. Slaves were set free. The year of jubilee. And you can find the details of that in Leviticus 25, where Moses tells the people, you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty. You see that language? Proclaim liberty. Exactly the same sort of language as the anointed is using in our chapter here. Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. The tragedy, of course, is that these rhythms felt like they were just a little bit too costly for a great many people in Israel. And there's pretty good evidence to suggest that actually in the history of Israel, they never observed the year of Jubilee. 
and that they were less than faithful in even observing the Sabbath year. And the consequence of that disobedience to God's law was that for the weak, for the poor, for the disenfranchised in society, instead of the hope that the law should have held out for them, because of God's people's disobedience, they were trampled under with no hope. They fell on hard times, and the law that was there to help them was being ignored, and they were left hopeless. And this is part of the reason why Israel would be taken off into captivity. But into that environment, the Lord speaks. The Lord's anointed proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. It really is a jubilee, a declaration of liberty. Those who would be languishing in Babylonian captivity are given the promise of the Lord's anointed who will come and pronounce them free. And notice that it's it's more than just a promise for those who are poor and brokenhearted and lowly. There's a, a certain disposition of heart here as well. I don't know if you notice the number of times between verse 2 and 3 that reference to mourning is made. He's come to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion. It's to those who have ashes on their head. I mean, this is what Israelites did when they mourned. They covered their head in ash. Instead of mourning, they'll be given a beautiful headdress. They'll be given the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The benefits of the anointed one, they don't come simply because someone is, is poor or imprisoned. They come to those who are grieved before the Lord at their condition, and especially this context of ancient Israel. The reason they ended up in that mess is because of their own sinfulness. The anointed comes to seek those who mourn that condition before God, who are grieved in the presence of God at what their sin has done. But the most magnificent thing is the turnaround. Beauty is given in exchange for ashes. This oil of gladness instead of mourning, it, it carries that idea of the full life, the free life. I mean, isn't that what David revels in in Psalm 23? You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. But for me, it's this imagery at the end of verse 3 that's most striking. You give them the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of of the Lord. The Lord's people would literally be uprooted and scattered. And here is the promise that the Lord will plant them. And this picture of a large oak tree, it's one of, of stability, immovability. And they are oaks of righteousness. That righteousness, it speaks of how they stand before God. They are accepted before God. 
Think of the description of the blessed person in Psalm 1. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And it's this transformation that's going to enable God's people to do the rebuilding. And if you um, read back over verses 4, 5, and 6, there's a, a rebuilding project for them to get on with. They will rebuild the nation. There is reconstruction in verse 4 where the ancient ruins are going to be built up Verse 5, the, the nations will be included in this revived kingdom. Strangers will come, foreigners shall be your plowmen. And in verse 6, God's people will be the nation of priests that they were called to be, those who stood in relationship with God. And I can say to you that um, the history books record for us, and indeed the scriptures record for us, the Israelites were brought out of Babylonian captivity. And they had an anointed king. His name was Zerubbabel. They rebuilt their city. And to some extent rebuilt their nation. But I can say with certainty that those events, as much as they were from the hand of the Lord, were not the fulfillment of these verses in Isaiah 61. They were a foretaste. They were a signpost, if you like, to the full work of salvation that God would perform through his anointed. Because we fast forward in our Bibles to Luke chapter 4. And there we read of Jesus Christ who arrives back in his hometown of Nazareth. And he enters into the local synagogue there and he stands to his feet to read the scriptures. Listen to these words. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I think the hairs on the back of their neck must have stood up when they heard him say that. He read these words from Isaiah 61 and he sat down to teach and he said, today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. The voice that speaks in Isaiah 61 is the voice of Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed. In Luke 4, he is commencing his ministry and he does so with the words of this prophecy ringing in the air. This is what is being fulfilled. This promise in Isaiah perfectly captures the mission of Christ. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to the undeserving, to those who have no means to help themselves. And in Isaiah, this, this glorious future, it is presented in these grand terms, the grandest terms that the people of Israel could imagine. This restored kingdom, how wonderful. 
But it is good news only for the weak, for the poor, for the imprisoned, for those who mourn. And consistently in the ministry of Jesus Christ, he seemingly has nothing to offer to the proud, to the self-righteous, to the self-sufficient. He has nothing for them. As he himself would teach, it is the sick who need a doctor, not those who are well. And it is the case as we read the testimony of Scripture about who God is, it actually multiplies our learning. Knowing God means understanding the world around us better. Knowing God means understanding myself more clearly. Because the more I see of God in His holiness and purity, the more I see myself in my sinfulness and shame. And until we have seen that, until we can take possession of that label, that well-deserved label, then the Lord's anointed speaks no good news to us. Until we can see ourselves before God as poor, enslaved, and helpless, there is no good news here for us. Because it is for those who are enslaved in sin. It is for those who are in spiritual poverty. Those who are convicted about their rebellion against God. It is for weaklings. Weaklings who know that they're weaklings. He turns all who come to him in faith into mighty oaks. Now I reckon if we were given the job of coming up with a metaphor for the church if you were given the task, I would give you a blank sheet of paper and say, right, look around. This is the church. Draw me a picture that would sum it up. I don't think many of us would plump for mighty oaks. Something much more flimsy would seem to be in order. A paper straw, perhaps. But if we look at the apparent weakness of the church, and become discouraged because it looks so weak, then in some ways we miss the point. And we get some more insight into the sort of transformation that takes place when the voice changes. And the voice seems to change in verse 7. And uh, because here the Lord speaks, and that's confirmed for us in verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. And the voice changes to show us that the change that takes place is never superficial. God's work is never superficial. So notice with me verse 7. This transforming power of God involves a, a, change, of, a change of status for God's people. I mean, there's some big substitutions take place here. Verse 7, instead of your shame... Instead of your dishonor, there shall be a double portion. They shall rejoice in their lot. This is a deep transformation. Disgrace and dishonor, those are the things that keep you outside of a community, aren't they? 
I mean, those are the things that will get you cancelled today if you're deemed to have done something disgraceful or thought something disgraceful. They keep you out. Instead, God says, instead of that, that disgrace, that dishonor, you will have double. That's what it literally says. You'll have double. And the meaning really is a fullness, an abundance of blessing. And we see that it's more than double, don't we? Verse 7, he says, you will have everlasting joy. Everlasting joy. But what is it that drives God to do this? Sometimes the way that we speak about the Christian message is we think about its unfairness. After all, uh, we are sinners, and yet God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Instead, He gives us double. He gives us this everlasting joy. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us a right standing before Him. He brings us into His family. We are oaks of righteousness. As He's going to say later on in verse 10, He gives us the robe of righteousness. And frankly, that all sounds terribly unfair, doesn't it? We don't deserve any of that. But look at verse 8 of this chapter. Why does God do what He does? For I, the Lord, love justice. I love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. God tells us that we are not to think about salvation, His rescuing sinners, His restoring His fallen people in any way as something that is unfair. At no point does God's salvation ever compromise His commitment to justice. In fact, it is His justice that drives Him to do it. That's the suggestion here, isn't it? Why does He do it? For I, the Lord, love justice. And so the question really is how? How on earth could that be just? Well, the answer is God's work is never superficial. We live in an age where the convenient cover-up is something that uh, is all too readily reached for. Things are swept under the carpet, not necessarily dealt with. If we can hide something, that is far better than having to deal with it. But God's work is never superficial like that. And really, one of the keys is to pick up this, this change of status language that is used. How they were one thing and now they are another. And in particular, there's a, a comparison made in verse 10 with being dressed like a bride and a groom. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And this is a common image in the Scriptures. Israel is very often described as God's bride, and, and, and tragically described as God's adulterous bride. And yet He pursues her, and He makes her His. And it is the case, just like when I got married, what little was mine became Amy's, and whatever was hers became mine. So that same sort of union takes place between Christ and His people. 
He has actually so united his people to himself that what is theirs actually becomes his. All their sin, all their shame, all their dishonor, he makes it his. And he bears it away on the cross as though it was his own. Because in a legal sense, that sin, that shame, it became his when he united himself to sinners. And it's there on the cross of Jesus Christ that God's perfect justice against sin is poured out upon him. It's there that all that we deserve for our sin is poured out on him. And God at the cross shows himself to be fully committed to justice. There's no sweeping it under the carpet here. There's no hiding a cover-up somewhere. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's work is never superficial. The Messiah really does deal with these great barriers to knowing God. He brings about a real change in our status before Him, driven by His perfect justice. And look at this, it produces a distinct people. That's the sense of verse 9. Their offspring will be known among the nations. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. A distinct people to a watching world, it is evident in those people who God has transformed by His anointed that only God could do this. Only God could produce such a thing. Because you see, God's work is never superficial. Friends, how do we get from where we are to where we would love to be? How do we get from sinfulness, lostness, shame, rejected by God, to being right with Him, to being forgiven, to having hope of eternal life beyond death with Him? Well, this passage speaks to poor lost sinners, and it doesn't tell them to do something. It doesn't tell them to be something. It points them to the Lord's anointed. It says, turn your eyes to Jesus Christ. That's where our gaze is directed from Isaiah 61, to look to Jesus Christ who fulfilled this very Scripture. It's a message of God's grace, deserving only God's rejection and judgment. Instead, God rescues us, meeting all the demands of His own perfect justice. His beloved Son takes our place. And what an assurance that gives us. You know, you read the history of Israel, their restoration seems so short-lived at times. They make these big commitments, and within a few weeks, they're off worshiping idols. But we can be sure that we belong to God because He has made what's described in this passage as an everlasting covenant, an everlasting commitment to be our God. He's forever committed Himself to us all of the demands that justice would make, stacked up against us in our sinfulness. We are assured here that they are forever silenced because of what the Lord's anointed has done. God's work is deep, and it lasts forever. 
So it's important to be clear that as a church, we are not here for your money. We're not even here for your attendance. On their own, those things are superficial works. But we are here to present to you the good news that God might actually change us, starting with our hearts, giving us new hearts, cleansed from sin, and rejoicing in the Lord, which is where this chapter ends. It ends on a note of rejoicing, because the voice changes again in verse 10. It's no longer the Lord, but who is it? It could be the Lord's anointed, but I must admit, I hear Isaiah's voice here in verse 10. He speaks as one of the people of God, as a recipient of God's grace. It's the one, voice of one who responds in worship. What does he say? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. He has clothed me. He has covered me. It is all God's grace, all God's action towards us. He is the active one in our rescue to produce a worshiping people. And that is surely one of the distinctives of the people of God is that they don't quite ever get over the grace of God that they've been granted. It's the Lord who grows his kingdom. Just as the earth sprouts forth new life, so the Lord will cause praise and righteousness to sprout up before all nations. These mighty oaks, they'll sprout up, they'll grow for all to see, and each one of them planted by the Lord himself. This is why we come together week after week to be reminded about the good news of Jesus Christ. Together, as a, as a church family, we, we come under the sound of the Word of God. We meditate on the attributes of God, the person of Christ, the grace of God in salvation. And Isaiah says, when you do that sort of thing, there's an inevitability to God's work. Righteousness and praise, they sprout forth. Oaks of righteousness are planted and grown. What a corrective that is to how we view the church at times. Yes, it's outwardly unimpressive. I can say that looking out here. It's outwardly unimpressive. But in God's sight, it's secure, it's fruitful. It's enduring. And all of that through Christ alone. And put here to be those things before the nations. When we grasp that we only got from death to life, from sin to salvation, from weakling to mighty oak because we looked to Jesus who did it all, then what we do is we we look to the Lord again and again and again, and we ask Him to plant some more oaks of righteousness. This week, as we enter into Holiday Club Week as a church, with all of its activities, all of the things that we want to do so well, the main thing we do is we turn to the Lord's anointed, and we ask 
for his transforming grace to be at work to save people, to plant some more. As we interact with our neighbors, our family, our friends this week, we look to the Lord and we ask him, plant some more. That our testimony as individuals and as a gospel community here would be used by God to bring people to his anointed, to hear the good news that he proclaims, and to believe in Jesus Christ. So that God may be glorified, that another soul can say, it is God's transforming power that has changed me from sinner to saved. Let's pray that that transforming power goes with us into this week in all our labors for him. Amen.